Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, and chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. From chapter 4, A little farther up the shore he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. From chapter 20, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This weekend has been the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. It's a time set aside for celebrating the gift of the Torah and the liberated Hebrew people receiving the gift of the law. God saw his beloved covenant people suffering under the weight of oppression. And after unleashing deadly plagues upon the oppressors, concluding with the spirit of death, claiming the firstborn sons of any whose homes were not marked with the blood of the Passover lamb, God brought the enslaved people out of the land of their captivity and into a time of reprogramming. The laws under which the Hebrew people had lived were unfair, violent, and designed to keep those in authority in comfort and in power. And they were way too easy to recreate and live into by default. The Hebrew people had 400 years of that drilled into their minds and spirits, and so God provided a new law that was built more on fairness, equity, and though perhaps the Old Testament standard seems harsh compared to our obviously superior modern sensibilities, the punishments for wrongdoing were far more restrained, more focused on restitution and reconciliation than the laws under which they had been suffering. The giving and receiving of commandments on Mount Sinai was a landmark event indicating that divine favor was not aligned with just the powerful, but in fact God would make a great nation of those who were abused, mistreated, and cast aside. It was as the faithful Jewish people made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Shavuot festival, or the festival of weeks, it was then that the Christ followers were gathered together in that same city to wait and pray. And they heard a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them ability. This was Pentecost. It was the next fulfillment of a lot of powerful events that came before it. Like a reversal of Genesis 11 when the haughty people were trying to build their own pathway to God and they were no longer able to understand each other. Like in Exodus 19 when Moses was atop Mount Sinai and with the sound of a ram's horn and surrounded by smoke, the Lord descended in the form of fire and God's voice thundered among the people. 
God once again came down to plant the law of God in the hearts of believers. And the confusion that confounded the human efforts to make a pathway and climb to God, that confusion turned into clarity as God's pathway was declared in the language of all who had gathered in that place. This was not the plot of humanity, but the plan of God. Just 50 days prior, during the celebration of Passover, the leader of their group was executed by Rome. The intent was that this movement of marginalized misfits would be snuffed out. Instead, they poured out into the streets of Jerusalem with power. And this group that had been scared and hiding became God's chosen vessel to relay good news. Peter describes how this happened. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've been spending time over this past month talking about how the family of faith interacts with some of our family celebrations, but there are certainly some challenges to that approach. One challenge is that family looks and feels very different to people for a number of reasons, and we're going to look at some of those examples of why that is and how our family of faith steps in. You've probably heard the term empty nest before. I'm not talking about the sitcom starring Richard Mulligan that was a spinoff of the Golden Girls, but I know some of you remember just what I'm talking about. It's an interesting term, and it has some pretty specific denotations, but we're going to expand on some of that today, and that takes us to our first lesson. Our nests can be empty for a number of reasons. Our nests can be empty for a number of reasons. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, we read how a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him leaving the boat and their father behind. I don't know if you were paying much attention to the SpaceX Dragon Falcon 9 spacecraft launch attempts of this past week. I suppose you could raise a virtual hand in the comments if you did. I tuned in Thursday to see the launch get scrubbed by weather. I tuned in again on Saturday to see the launch. Thursday, the crew was all strapped in. They had gone within about 15 minutes of the launch, and they had to walk back through the entire process of preparation to disembark. I'm sure it was disappointing. There were big plans, and those plans didn't work out. I don't think Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin had to move into their parents' basement for those couple of days until the launch would function properly, but when it happens for a lot of other folks, if they don't launch, that's sometimes a part of it. But sometimes the ones who have been in our nest for a while finally do learn how to use their wings. And they launch. They move out, go to work, pay their bills, and live somewhat independent of the safety nets of their families of origin. This is the sort of scenario that we see in the scripture this morning, except it's more about fishing nets than safety nets. We meet Zebedee, who is a Galilean fisherman who is prepping two sons to join him in the family fishing trade. They were working with dad, and you see how this goes. Jesus was walking along and calls for James and John to follow, and they immediately do. They probably at least knew of Jesus. He was gaining in fame and popularity in the region. Zebedee likely knew of this guy. He was from the area. He was impressing many of the locals. He hadn't quite started to do miracles yet, but Simon, Peter, and Andrew were with this guy. They seemed like some good fellows, fishermen too. And so Zebedee just sent them. 
He sends his sons. It may be not how we would have done it, but there you go. Sending older kids or young adults out into the workforce or to serve as apprentices or a study program and to leave their proverbial nests, that is part of what may cause our nests to be empty. But it's not the only way people can find themselves alone in their homes. We miss that so often in the church, and I'm going to talk about that problem shortly. But first, let's acknowledge that some people find themselves alone because they experienced maybe the death of a loved one or like a child or a spouse. That grief can create a void of emptiness in someone's home. Maybe there was a dissolution of marriage and the nest feels very empty or at least very different from how they had hoped or imagined. Maybe kids didn't get sent out with what you'd call productivity, but instead they got stuck in cycles of addiction and troubling behavior. It's not the kind of things that folks tend to include in their annual Christmas letters, but it's part of more lives than we probably know. Maybe someone has lived single their whole lives, and there isn't a transition from a full house to an empty nest. They've always made it on their own, but that doesn't mean that they're without need for community or they don't experience loneliness. In times of isolation, like what we've experienced through sheltering the past few months, that can probably feel very isolating. There are lots of very valid emotional responses to these circumstances, but sometimes feelings of hurt can be made worse by what we lift up in religious circles. And that's our second lesson today. The stock photo image of family can be harmful. Stock photo image of family can be harmful. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've seen a lot of pictures on many church websites that without any written context surrounding it, I might easily mistake it for an advertisement about teeth whitening systems. You've seen it. It's a type of picture that comes with the frame when you buy it. It's an idealized image, professionally taken and perfectly airbrushed and photoshopped before making its way to a hobby store or stock image gallery near you. I'm not saying that smiling is bad. I love to see Christians experiencing the joy of the Lord. That really is good. It's just that these images lift up, that we lift up, they do a couple of things. They tell us what kind of people we present ourselves as airbrushed and flawless families, maybe even with a few generations of fabricated family unit pieced together so that we can have that multi-generational vibe. They're dressed impeccably. All their furniture is white. They look like they're still glowing from a recent beach vacation. It's fantastic. It may not appear anything like that if you look just beneath the surface, but it sure does present well. But it also sends a signal to folks who don't look like that says you might not fit in here. I feel guilty of even lifting up something like that stock image when I speak about my family or when we focus on children or youth in worship. I suppose one option is to not do any of that so we don't leave anybody out, but that's not the only solution. I think a big part of overcoming what Reggie Joyner and Carrie Newhoff referred to as the stock family syndrome is to simply acknowledge it's not going to be like a Photoshop version of family. That's not even an expectation. Jesus will meet us precisely where we are, even if it doesn't look like the Polaroid has fully developed in our lives. Jesus will surround us with a strange and imperfect conglomeration of ragamuffin pilgrims and beggars at various points along this discipleship journey to grow us into the full measure of maturity in Christ. When we're in Christ, to our Heavenly Father, we look like the Jesus picture that comes in the frame. Now, maybe it's the picture of Jesus lying helpless in a manger. Maybe it's the one where he's got spit and dirt on his fingers to help someone in desperate need. 
Maybe it's the one where he's been recently baptized and he's glowing with the Holy Spirit. Or the one where he's on the mountain with Elijah and Moses shining with the glory of God. Or maybe it's a snapshot of Jesus on his knees with an apron wrapped around him, tending to his disciples' filthy feet. Or perhaps it's even the one where Jesus is dying, bleeding and suffocating on the cross, rejected and forsaken. There are a lot of imperfect, imperfect situations that can still look an awful lot like the scrapbook of our perfect Savior. And Jesus absolutely loves to walk into those scenarios. Here's an example. In Acts 8, we learn about a eunuch who has served the queen of Ethiopia. That was a practice of castration that sometimes was exercised against males with close proximity to female royalty to reduce the risk of sexual assault or aggression. Though this eunuch's job carried with it great authority, the castration part was probably not something he chose. This unnamed royal servant was probably what Jewish people would refer to as a God-fearing Gentile. They were not Jewish by ethnicity, but they learned about and worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel, as best they could. And this particular God-fearing Gentile had an extra strike against him because Deuteronomy 23 starts off by saying that one who is cut off in the way that this man was cut off is also cut off from the assembly of the Lord. So this servant of the queen still went to Jerusalem to worship and was riding home by way of Gaza when Philip, a follower of Christ, was called to the scene to provide the gift of community to somebody who was trying to make sense of Scripture. We read in Acts chapter 8, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Please tell me who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip explained to this God-fearing Gentile how Jesus was that suffering servant described in Isaiah. How, though Jesus' life was cut short without any physical descendants, his followers formed a family, and that family was growing. That, as this eunuch keeps reading in Isaiah, he'll find out that the one who suffered made it possible for the unrighteous to be declared righteous, that the unworthy would be granted access to the presence of God, and that the one without descendants will find they have many in faith. Just a few chapters later, God's message to Isaiah says that the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Now, the previous sign of the covenant for the Hebrews was circumcision, something this servant of Ethiopia had already experienced to the extreme. He couldn't be counted as part of the family of God by that sign. So what could be done? He sees maybe just a puddle on the side of the road and asks Philip, why can't I be baptized? And by faith, this person who did not look like the stock photo of religious life at the time was baptized by the one that God sent specifically for that leg of his journey. He was welcomed by faith and through the water of new life into the family of God. 
There are some traditions dating back to Irenaeus in the second century about what became of this newly baptized convert. Some believe this man was named Simeon, and he came to be one of the prophets and teachers in Antioch at the same time as the apostle Paul. And one of the reasons the church exists is to be that kind of family, regardless of the current occupancy of our personal nests, because that's not what makes life full. That leads to our third lesson. It's God's presence in your nest that makes for a full life. God's presence in your nest is what makes for a full life. I'm going to revisit the story that we started with with a follow-up. Remember how Jesus is walking along and invited John and James to follow and they left the dad there with the fishing nets, right? There was another party that was left out of that equation and she catches up to Jesus 16 chapters later. In Matthew chapter 20, we read, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. If you want to let Mark's telling in this passage just preach to you, please check out Dr. Martin Luther King's Drum Major Instinct sermon from February of 1968. But I've also heard this passage referred to as the helicopter parenting passage. Jesus in his third year of public ministry and he's leading a massive procession towards Jerusalem where rumor is he's going to make himself king through a revolutionary act. The crowds are amped, this feeling is electric, and Mrs. Zebedee comes along with a request when Jesus makes his way to the throne of Israel. Maybe they anticipate an act of war, maybe a quiet coup to oust the vicious Roman appointee that's governing Judea. It's sure to be a big undertaking, and mom comes along to bend Jesus' ear with, now don't forget my boys. I've not met this stretch of road yet. We're not there as a family, but I read and I listen. I understand there are a number of things that folks have to let go of if they find their nests emptied. In her book, Empty Nest, Full Life, Jill Savage recognizes the need for those sending kids out to let go of guilt that families can feel when we've fallen short or aren't doing enough anymore, we feel. She talks about letting go of opinions and that we shouldn't steal the struggle entirely from those who are finding their own way. We have to let go of some traditions, maybe, and especially ones, once the ones we sent out are forming their own traditions, maybe with their own growing family. She says folks also need to let go of the idolatry of what was, especially the idolatry of identity. That comes through when parents have been so wrapped up in the lives of their kids that they lose themselves entirely. They've got little idea what to do with their lives when that season concludes. And Jill emphasizes the need to find a mission field. Say you've got something that looks and feels a little bit like independence. How does that transmit to fulfillment? There's a place for travel and taking care of things around the house and simple pleasures and entertainment. But there's also a family of faith that needs who you are so we can be more of who we are called to be. I've seen so many families graduate church once kids graduate high school, in part because deep inside, folks imagine that this whole thing is about children's stories and something that we're supposed to do to raise moral kids. Sorry to all the folks who have to explain that eunuch story later on today because that's definitely not a children's story, but you can see from the narrative of God's family that it's much deeper and richer and engaging than the cartoonish coloring pages that so many of us experienced growing up. It's an adventure to live with a mission, 
to maybe have the opportunity to get whisked like Philip was into and out of a need simply because God asked you to be there, to find new horizons of faith not yet explored because you have space to do exploring. And we offer our circumstances and season to Christ, we'll find that our nest is never quite so empty and that our lives can be incredibly full in ways that impact eternity. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as long as you are with us, we are never alone. We are never without your presence and never without your grace. Allow us to hold fast to that, to allow your presence to move us forward by grace. We thank you for the love that you share with us, for the ways that you make us whole, and the ways that you provide this family of faith to make for us a community, to lead us and guide us along our way. Help us to offer ourselves to one another in that grace, as others have offered themselves to us similarly. We give this all to you with hope and gratitude empowered by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's holy name, amen.